Before we open the word and take a look at this passage, uh, just want to say thank you for those of you who've mentioned your willingness and interest in praying for me as we leave tomorrow morning. We'll drive to Charlotte early. And I'll be traveling with Kent Griggs, one of the elders at the church in uh, Conway that we constituted a year ago, October 30th. And he's a, a dear friend, and he's got a real heart um, to support uh, the cause of missions in the world. And so he's going kind of to spy out the land with me. Nate and Julia and their four sons from eight to two, Isaac, Levi, Elijah, and Cyrus Benjamin, they arrived Friday, 26 hours door to door. And I think they put, like one text to me, we made it. (laughs) That was it. Long trip. But they're going with view to a call to, for Nate to serve as kind of like the academic dean for the Trinity Pastors College there uh, in Nairobi that's headquartered at Trinity Baptist Church. It's a very, very fine family. Julia, Julia who is a doula, is uh, working on her, I guess you'd say a doctorate of midwifery with the University of Utah. And she, one idea is that they could, uh, with so many abortions, um, so many unexpected pregnancies, at least humanly speaking, there in Nairobi. It's a great ministry for the gospel in that huge urban center. So uh, please remember us as we go. Uh, one of the things is, I think some of you know this, this uh, paradigm of you go when you cross a cultural boundary. You go as a guest with courtesy. You go as a learner with curiosity. You go as a servant with humility. And um, having done just a few of these trips, I'm, you know, I'm reminded this is, this is work. This is not about sightseeing or anything. Um, I think I've been on the ground there in Kenya somewhere around 70 days in three different trips. And I went on safari once with Cheryl for six hours, but I've never, it's, it's work. And it's, it's a focused trip not a vacation, but it's to give ourselves to spend, as Paul says in in 2 Corinthians, to spend and be spent on their behalf. So pray for us as we go. Um, Before we open the word, let's let's take a moment and pray. I also want to remember um, the uh, Rodriguez's, Eric and Rebecca, and their six as they leave Tuesday, I think, Part of the family's flying, part of the family's driving, and I just want to remember them before the throne of grace, too, as we pray. So if we can do that and pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we might tremble before it. Even as we see the children of Israel trembling before you, we pray that we would not be cavalier casual in an unseemly way before your word and father we thank you for Eric and Rebecca praying that you would go with them Um, this week as they return to Southern California we thank you for them we thank you for their time with us these 10 months And we pray that um, they would go with your blessing 
And we thank you for the contribution and the influence they've had in the life of our body over these last 10 months. And we receive that with gratitude. Thank you for shaping us, shaping our faith, shaping our love, shaping our understanding of how we live out the Christian life through their family. And so we, um, we remember them and we commend them to your grace. Hear us now as we open your word. We need your help. We look to you for grace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, how do you react to a surprising, startling event? Maybe an unexpected email, the deliverance of bad news. How about a knock on the door at just the wrong time? Like, you do not need an uninvited guest. You have no margin. Maybe a voice or person from the long ago past. Someone who comes up behind you or out of a closet and scares you almost to death. Maybe a sudden sound that sets you on edge. Do you quake with fear? Do you blow up with excitement? Do you express puzzlement? Do you find yourself on a razor's edge? Now look, some of you are cool as a cucumber with unanticipated circumstances. You just seem to be coated with Teflon. So a change of plans, a turn of events, a startling, unexpected moment. You're like a duck on the surface of a lake. You're just gliding along, but your little feet are going like this underneath. But others of you find all of that a challenge. You're easily started. You're derailed fairly easily. And I want you to think about this, that since the fall, there is in us and in fallen humanity this inbuilt tendency to pull away from God in sinful fear and shame. That's why God came looking for Adam in the garden. I say looking in quotes. But in reality, God in covenant love invites us to draw near to him, to hear him and fear him that we might not sin, but that we as his people might mirror his holiness. What would you do How would you respond if God appeared? If he clearly appeared and you experienced what we call a theophany. You know what an epiphany, that sudden realization of something. An aha moment. Well, a theophany is just an epiphany plus God. So by theophany, we simply mean an appearance by God. And so that's the basis for the title of our message tonight. And for these three little verses, you might notice, too, that I've actually followed the pattern here of the ESV there on page 61 that includes verse 21 with the earlier verses, okay? But... It's an appearance by God, the idea of theophany, that shaped the title of this verse, this message, when God appears. We could also call this what Alec Matier calls a covenant interlude. And I want to give a quick shameless plug for anything on the Old Testament by Alec Matier. I think that's how you say his name, M-O-T-Y-E-R, phenomenal. I'll quote him some today. I think it's a tremendous 
Old Testament scholar, particularly in the narrative passage of the law and, and then in the writings. I almost called this message a postscript to the 10 words and then maybe a covenant interlude, but I thought, how about just when God appears? And you might have noticed that when Josh read the parallel and the extended account of this passage from the final verses of Deuteronomy 5, that those 11 verses, Deuteronomy 5, 22 through 23, really jive. They go with these four verses in Exodus 20. Moses expands three verses into an 11-verse section. And so Deuteronomy 5 is really the expanded version. And so what you have here is Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 and 20, with the prophet Moses. And you ought to be thinking there's a reason Josh, that Josh read for us, Matthew 17, 1 through 8. You have the Mount of Transfiguration. And we'll see right from Mount Sinai, and you might even say then the great law giver, giver, the one who comes to fulfill the law, appears, and then we have in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, he exposits the law, he gives a new enlightened understanding of the spiritual dimension of the law, really a manifesto for the, the citizens of the kingdom, and then in this fullness of glory, the one who came to fulfill the law and the prophets, who is the ultimate for which Moses is the prophet, the one who received the law there at Sinai, and even Elijah, the one who manifests the great, the, the great prophet of signs and wonders. It's there our Lord Jesus that we might say in Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, probably Mount Hermon or Mount Tabor, just northwest of the Sea of Galilee, stands in contrast or fulfillment to, and it's pointing to that. And there the focus is on Jesus as that true and better Moses, the one who has come to take us, his people, home. And by the way, that let me apply this just for a moment. When we grieve with news, of whether a church family's moving on to another church or relocating 2,500 miles, the comfort that we have as the people of God is that we have this shared inheritance and that we shall not just see him face to face, but that we will be ultimately and into eternity a people reunited finally. And so how can we break down these three verses? I want you to think of it this way. Verse, let's look particularly at 18 through 20 this way. First, the circumstances, the circumstances of theophany. That is when God appears. Secondly, the mark of theophany. And there, this is with a twist because I say when God speaks. You might notice in verse 19 that God does not speak. His mediator speaks. It's Moses speaking. But first, when God appears, verse 18, that's the circumstances of theophany. Secondly, a mark of theophany, when God speaks, verse 19. And then thirdly, God's desire in theophany, particularly in this, in this, in this little section, this 
covenant interlude, you might call verse 20, sin-killing reverence for him. What does God desire? Sin-killing reverence for him. So first, the circumstances of theophany. That is when God appears. For a moment, I want you to think, what were the circumstances that the children of Israel experienced at Sinai? They really were awesome. They really were overwhelming. It was multi-sensory. You see verse 18 provides us more detail. Imagine this, kids, just for a moment. There's not only, it says the people saw the thunder, right? They saw the thunder, the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. It says, and the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. All right? And the fact that these verses occur after the giving of the ten words tells us that they're an event in themselves. It's like, here's the two tablets of the law, four and then six, and then there's this pause and there's this bracketing of this moment. Because all of this is happening as God is speaking in the midst of the fire. But it's an event, in a sense, in, the, in and of itself. This is the interlude of the covenant, a pause in the entire covenant and law section from Exodus 19.1 through the end, or through about 24.18 or 24.21. And another way to think of these three verses, and it's extremely simple, is the response of the people to the revelation of the covenant. And chapter 19 helps us anticipate all the circumstances of theophany. It's kind of a precedent for it. Though it's not the first instance of theophany in the scriptures. And I think, by the way, families, this is a great, this week, ask yourself, where else has God appeared up to page 61 in your ESV? Where else has he appeared? All right? It's a good question. And it's a good little study. How has God appeared? So this was promised. This was anticipated, but is no less startling, right? And some of you know how this is. You can tell I'm about to pull the trigger on this gun at the gun range, or I'm about to pull the trigger on this deer. But the 30-odd six or the 357 Magnum, even when you're expecting the sound of it, is startling when you're right next to it. It's startling. No less kind of overwhelming, no less compelling. So I want you to think about all that they experienced. Thunder, not just the sound. And so that word there, saw, in the first line of verse 18, I think is better translated perceived. They perceived the thunder, the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and a smoking mountain. We know at least part of this was one long blast of the trumpet, but it could have been even more in the interlude, in the whole giving here of the law, in this smoking mountain. You know, one of the things that we have that's so beautiful on the East Coast is we have the Smoky Mountain National Park, and it's beautiful to see it. Especially like in the morning from this side, from the east, and the sun lights it up, and, and you see the, the green that just comes and the, the smoke over it. But imagine if you add to that the thunder and the lightning, and moreover, the very voice 
of God. There's sight and sound and smell, even vibrations. All the senses were in play. And God would be noticed. He would and could not be easily dismissed here at Sinai. It's very interesting because you think, oh, here's the product of this theophany. Two tablets of stone, 10 words. But no, you can just imagine to generation after generation of those who were present, what they had to say of what the, all that they saw and heard and felt and smelled. We read in verse 13 of chapter 19, we read, the trumpet sounds a long blast. And then, so they're all anticipated here. Verse 16 of chapter 19. There were thunders, lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast. And then in verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. This is Exodus 19 of verse 18. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And he said, we wrote, the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the real precedence for this is when the Lord destroyed in the book of Genesis Sodom and Gomorrah. God is good, but he is not to be played with. This, this is a theophany, and these are the circumstances of theophany in the scriptures. Look at the verbs here in verse 18. It said, they, that is, all the people saw. And this is a participle. It's this idea of something going on. It's of a perception that was sustained and that lingered. Like when someone's looking at you, maybe you've had someone look at you and they're thinking, is something wrong? And they're looking at you, kind of soaking you in, taking you in from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. This is the idea here of the tense or this use of a participle. It's sustained and it lingered, not a punctuated moment in time. And then there are these three verbs stacked in verse 18. Literally three verbs in a row in the Hebrew. You read this when it says, and they were afraid, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, boom, 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 boom. This picture here is the people of God in this moment, this hour of theophany. And yet Moses is the one drawing near to God. But the people are drawing farther away, pulling away. Notice that twice in this section you see at the end of verse 18 and the beginning of 21, the very same words. The people and they stood far away. Off. I want you to notice if you'll turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 5 for a moment, verses 22 and 23, the parallel passage and how it expands our understanding of this scene. In the retelling here, Moses says these words, speaking of the ten words, the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud in the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. In other words, there were these 10 words 
on two tablets of stone. He says, and he gave them to me, inscribed with the finger of God. Verse 23, Deuteronomy 5. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the fire of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. All right? So first, we've looked at the circumstances of theophany when God appears. Now, I want us to think about this mark of theophany, and that is when God speaks. And I, I telegraph this to you that there's a twist here that, in fact, God is not speaking in verse 19. If you will, he's speaking through Moses. He's speaking through Moses, which really... That was the whole idea of the Lord all the time, right? It's verse 9 of chapter 19. Look at that. He said, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. But now we come to 19. And I want you to look at it for a moment. The people, they come... As we know from Deuteronomy 5, they came with representative leadership. They came as well as the heads of their tribes and their elders. And then the brief summary of that is found in Exodus 20 and verse 20. Do not, all right, they say to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Okay, And here God does not speak. The people speak to Moses. They're scared. Moses tells us they were afraid. And they say so from their far off place. They say, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They're afraid. They speak like those who were afraid and trembled, the way Moses describes them in verse 18. And you might say they wanted no part of God. I want you to look at the parallel passage now in Deuteronomy 5, verses 24 through 27. I know Josh has read this, but for a moment we get a greater glimpse of what took place in that moment. He said, remember, every time you have biblical narrative, every author in that moment is selective. He's giving us what we need to achieve his theological purpose in the moment. So now in this retelling, Deuteronomy, we get the expanded version. There was more to what the people said. You said, Moses says, verse 24, Deuteronomy, 20, of Deuteronomy 5, look, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. We've heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. Now remember that phrase, the midst of the fire. This day we've seen God with, speak with man, and man still live. So apparently they kept by the instructions to stay back and not approach the mountain. There was kind of, think of, think of like, for the moment, a barrier. Somehow they established, hey, don't cross this line. 
And apparently that took place. Verse 25. Now therefore, why should we die? Okay. In other words, we're not going to risk it further. For this great fire will consume us, right? So they heard God's voice out of the midst of the fire. Now they speak of that fire's capacity. They say it will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. We've been good up to this point, but we're not willing to risk it another minute further. And then they ask this question of Moses. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? In other words, they can't imagine that that would be an ongoing pattern. They are not willing to risk it further. And so they tell Moses in Deuteronomy 5.27, Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. So let's translate this for a moment. The people. Moses... We're fine with you. You speak with us, but we fear death should God's voice come again to us out of this great fire. It's not a risk we're willing to take. And you have to understand, they came near with their elders, the heads of the tribes. This wasn't simply whining. There was this genuine fear here, but we'll see Later, what we want to understand, the dimension of which that it's improper and then a proper fear. And so we'll move that way over the next few moments. And I think we should not be too hard here on the children of Israel. And I I think this will help. So Alec Mottier gives us perspective. He says, lightning is a symbol of the presence of Yahweh as a covenant maker. And the people had seen lightning flashes, right? That's the word for flashes of lightning there in verse 18. And Mattia says, they should have discerned the approach of God in his grace bearing promises. And if you've been listening through this series, you know he's coming as the God of grace because his introduction to the very Ten Commandments, to the covenant law, is that he is the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's their introduction to the law here. And so Mattier says they should have discerned the approach of God in his grace, bearing promises. Likewise, they saw the mountain covered with smoke, but they forgot the pillar of cloud which had meant all the way from Egypt that they were the Lord's pilgrims under his care. They saw with their own eyes, but really they failed to see. And after all, the trumpet was an invitation for them to come. You see that there in verse 13 of chapter 19. They wanted to hear God's words. They expressed a willingness to obey And they expressed a willingness to receive Moses as God's mediator, which was Yahweh's plan for them all along. Again, look at chapter 19 and verse 9. The Lord tells Moses, look, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud. 
that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. But here's what the people of God missed. Their hesitations and their fears were not well-founded. They had already been listening to the voice of God. And by their own words in Deuteronomy 5, of the gathered millions of the children of Israel there, not a life had been lost. And Alec Modier expresses it this way. They were hearing without hearing. Had they really been listening, they would have known that this was the voice of their Redeemer God, verse 2, the one who says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And just as Moses found when he approached the darkness where God was, verse 21, that he was in the presence of Yahweh, verse 22. Look at that right there in the next sections. The God of all grace. Well, thirdly, I want us to see not only when God, the circumstances of theophany when God appears, right? Or secondly, the mark of theophany when God speaks, but thirdly, God's desire in theophany, and that is sin-killing reverence for him. Look with me at verse 20. When God appears, when God speaks. So let's conclude our time here with this final verse. I want to read it to you. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And I want you to think about the irony here. The people were afraid. That is, they had fear, right? Verse 18. It's very plain. The people were afraid. Were afraid. And he adds, and trembled. That makes sense. You would tremble. You would shake if you were afraid. And then in the latter half of verse 20, Moses tells the people to whom he has just said, do not fear, which is the most common command in all the Bible, right? So here's the irony. They were afraid. Now Moses tells the people to whom he has just said, do not fear that a main purpose for God's covenantal theophany, for him appearing to them at this hour of unveiling his covenantal law in the terms of that is to test them with these two successive results. Number one, God appears to them and he says, do not fear is because he's appeared to them to test them so that the fear of him would be before them. That is, their lives would be marked by it. And two, that as a result of that godly, rever- reverential fear settling in them, marking their lives, denoting them as a people different from all the nations around them, that they would not sin. 
And for all that we might make of this theophany and God's revelation of the covenant in chapters 19 through 24, it is these words in Moses 20, in in, uh, Exodus 20 and verse 20, these words from Moses that frame a very significant purpose. There does exist a proper fear. There does exist a right reverence for God. Even in Sunday school this morning, one of our fathers recited Proverbs 1 in verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. There is, Alec Montier writes, he says, a true fear of God. And Moses wanted them to experience it. The Lord had just now laid down his law that he inscribed on two tablets of stone with his very own finger. And he had come to test, that is to prove his people, to see if they had that proper reverential fear for him, the true fear, which will turn them from the sins his law condemns and hold them to obedience to his commandments. I have a question as we conclude. Where's your heart tonight? Children, let me ask you, maybe some of you are not yet Christians. Do you have a fear for God? Do you have a respect for the one who made you, for your creator? Do you have a healthy regard for the one who rules the world, who, whose hand is, is the guiding providential hand? I thought of a new way to think of the Lord. It's a new way to think of CPR. He's our creator. He rules in creation. He rules in providence. He rules in redemption. Do you have this fear for God? Not simply a fear of his punishment, but a respect, a a trembling before the prospect of his mercies. Have you responded to God's gracious expressions of his love and grace to you and to a sin-ravished world? Do you really believe when you recite John 3.16 that God's love is annexed by one little word, S-O. He so loved the world that as Pastor Jamie unveiled for us this morning in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, that he spoke, has spoken to us in these final days by his son. Is your life, maybe otherwise, is it marked by a slavish fear? Or has that love produced in you the response that Moses told the children of Israel God desired of them. Here it is. Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may may be before you that you may not sin. Turn to Matthew 17 for a moment. I want you to think that from Mount Sinai, And you can think progressively from even 
the Sermon on the Mount to Golgotha. Ultimately, we would be there. Okay, there are all these mountains, right? So you have Mount Sinai, and then you have the Sermon on the Mount. You have the Mount of Transfiguration, which we think could have been Mount Oreb, maybe some 20, 30 miles northwest of the Sea of Galilee. And there is our Lord Jesus, the true and better Adam, the true and better Isaac, the true and better Moses the true and better David. And he understands fear. And he's on full display. And it's not surprising that there, when you think of the law, there's Moses. You think of the prophets, there's Elijah. Right? They're there. These who foreshadowed our Lord Jesus, they were at best penultimate lawgivers and penultimate prophets. He is the one to whom all the law and the prophets bear witness. And you see the words there. They fell on their face, verse 6, right? And you know what's going on, right? They see him, (laughs) They've come, they would have liked a mediator, right? They see him, his face shining like the sun, his clothes becoming white as light. And there, with these three brothers, Peter and James and John, these three disciples, there are Moses and Elijah talking to him. And Peter's like, hey, Lord, it's actually good that we're here. And he says, I think, like, we could kind of camp out here with three tents and We could do like one for each of you. And he's speaking, right? What you do when you're nervous, when you're afraid. And then this bright cloud, ah, (laughs) echoes of Sinai, overshadow them. And this voice from the cloud says, hey, this is my beloved son. There's no Moses now. There's just the son of God. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Just the disciples and the son of man in his glory. And they're afraid. Probably fear that looked a bit like the whole nation of Israel retreating away from Sinai. And the Lord Jesus comes, the Lord in manifest glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he touches them. And he says, rise and have no fear. And he says to each of us, and kids, let me say this to you. When you come and you realize that you have a serious heart problem. You need a new heart. He is willing to take out your heart. And he is willing to give you a new heart. 
We're not simply out of slavish fear. That is the fear of someone who's so scared that someone's going to beat them on the head or the back because they've disobeyed. But out of this new heart that wants to please God because you find God so desirable, so beautiful, so lovely that you want to please him. He says to you, rise, come, have no fear.